Welcome to the Swamplex Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. I am Boomer. Hi, I'm Allie. And this is the podcast version of the movie review website Swampflix. And I honestly have nothing new to report since the last time we talked. There's no context I could put on this place and time. We were just sort of floating in a limbo over here. So I really just want to jump right into talking about movies. I have some movies I'd like to talk about, but I would like to mark this occasion. Uh, I was being coy off mic earlier when I was talking about how, you know, things aren't great. But I did get my second shot this week. So it is now... T minus 11 days until I'm somewhere in a bar with my mask, of course, because I'm not an idiot, but in a bar listening to music I hate at a volume that I can't stand and I can't wait. I love that. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. It is going to make like the mediocre experiences of life uh, more vibrant and uh, cherished, I think. (laughs) Yeah, I'm looking forward to being bored and um, uncomfortable in new, exciting ways in the next couple months. I cannot wait to go to a store and smell every single candle. I haven't de- yes. been down a candle aisle and smelled that candle aisle in so long. Honestly, I didn't realize how much I missed just weird strangers saying weird things to me on the bus until, you know, <laughs> I haven't felt comfortable riding the bus in so long. And now I just want to ride public transit everywhere again. Miss it. I mentioned in my uh, review of Zack Snyder's Justice League that I went and saw the first movie and it seems so long ago, like an alien world, because, you know, I rode the bus to go see it, which I haven't done in so long, with my my face just raw in the air, you know, just breathing everybody else's (laughs) breath on the bus and then, you know, drank a drink with a, a straw that came out of a machine just naked, you know not wrapped in anything and also you know we already knew that straws were bad but there had not been the big uh, publicity campaign to stop using straws yet what a weird time but uh, Allie what have you been watching I yesterday had a moment where I woke up 8 30 in the morning um first person up in my house always and I immediately sat down and I was like, I wonder what's on the Criterion channel, like you do when you're me and a nerd. And they have a whole collection of Guy Madden movies. So I immediately just put on my Winnipeg and it was a great, great rewatch. I feel like I can always just kind of watch that movie because it's so, it's like hypnotic and then the humor is just so dry and bizarre. And I've Never been to Canada, but I feel like (laughs) I know what it's like. But immediately after watching My Winnipeg, I then watched the 20th Century. So I just had a really weird Canadian morning. And the 20th Century was amazing. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I liked how just wacky and just how much it loses just every bit of any sense it ever made in the first place, which wasn't that much like it was very surreal in the first place but then at the last point in the movie just everything is just out of control that movie might as well have been directed by guy madden as well it, right it's like right very much aping his style but uh it goes in a 
very unexpected direction with it, which is wild to say because Guy Madden goes in every direction he wants to at all times. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, for the movie to be able to surprise you with its like tone is, I don't know, very impressive. I actually think I kind of prefer it to Guy Madden's usual stuff. Yeah, I think it's more like a like an immature Guy Madden, like in its humor. It's tasteless in like a way that I can really oh, get behind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I texted you that it was Guy Madden for Kinksters the other yes. day when you told me you were watching it. Yes, it's 100% that. I really, really enjoyed it. It fits squarely in that Venn diagram middle of Swamp Flick's interests of art and trash and weird effects and fun. And our deep love of Canadian politics and Canadian history, you know? Oh, yeah, we love those. <laughs> yeah, I'm super well read up on the history lessons it was giving off. I had no idea who any of those people were, but it was a great time. <laughs> I mean, it didn't matter because it was still such a great political satire just of the times and felt very, very relevant given, you know, last year's American election. So, <laughs> oh, real definitely. fun. Well, I have been watching... We talked about this, mostly non-film things. And the films I have watched were mostly Hannibal Lecter related. Among the non-film things, which we were talking about off mic earlier, were The X-Files. And I'm going to go ahead and say technically Zack Snyder's Justice League. I don't know that you can rightfully call it a movie or a film. It's truly something. It is more like an experience, like a, you know, the internet was all aflame about Martin Scorsese's, like, uh, mention of the Marvel Cinematic Universe as being more like a theme park ride than like a film experience. And Zack Snyder's Justice League, it does feel like a theme park ride more than anything else. There's an awful lot of battles at the center of the mind to the point where sometimes I'm never really sure if we're supposed to take something literally when we're seeing it on screen, which was truly fascinating for like a pretty basic, not very smart superhero. Again, I hesitate to say movie, but I guess movie is the best descriptor. And I know, Brandon, you had your own thoughts about that. Yeah. I sat down to engage with it as a movie because that is how it is being presented. Um, so I sat down and watched all four hours of it in a single sitting. I'm like, God. if they're going to present this as the director's like vision for this film, let me engage with it as a, like a feature film. And it just like completely obliterated my brain. I was just so numb and so exhausted by the end. So I kind of agree with your like movie and scare quotes assessment. Like it is a television miniseries and not a very interesting one. I don't think. Like, the context of how this got assembled and released is more interesting than what happens in the film. Yeah, and scarier. And, like, terrifying. It has, like, these ripple effects even in the week since I've seen it where, like, today I was just watching people on Twitter complain that the new Mortal Kombat is not going to be long enough to go into each character's side story and, like, the fact that it's what? under two hours is, like, an affront to the property. Why would it's you like, want God. that? An affront to Mortal Kombat. Yeah, the lore is that they rip each other's spines out of their bodies, and that's it. Like, you know, there's no explanation necessary. And there were um, headlines that Adam Weingard had like an assembly cut of 
Godzilla versus Kong that he wasn't going to release because it was like five hours long. And he's like, no, my preferred vision is the one we released. It's like, obviously, every movie has a four to five hour cut that you like then whittle down to the actual film. So I, I do think it is giving people brain worms. And I do think that beyond that, it is like an example of like the worst impulses in what audiences want right now, which is like explanation for everything. It does normalize some of like the shakier parts of the original version of the film, but by doing that and by explaining it and filling in all the plot holes, so as we're calling them, and just like really just flattening everything out and normalizing it, and making it feel like a real movie, <laughs> it's just zapped every thing you could possibly find interesting out of it i would have to disagree about certain things i i do think that this is a much more interesting movie than or i'm sorry a much more interesting theme park ride than the movie that we got in 2017 i also think that this one like worked better there were fewer jokes that made me cringe and a couple that even made me smile and there is just something about like when women standing on like a gravel seashore, just like keening that I'm like, huh, that automatically bumps everything up half a star in my book. And I can't explain it. I definitely don't want to be in the position of defending Joss Whedon's joke script over <laughs> this one. <laughs> don't feel good about that. Uh, <laughs> there's definitely some things that are improved. I saw it. I'm troubled by its existence. Uh, I think <laughs> I think that as an actual experience, it's fine. It's certainly not, you know. Well, I, I hate I, I hate most of the time when people say things like, "Oh, it's not supposed to be Citizen Kane," and it's not supposed to be Citizen Kane. And boy, is it not uh, Citizen Kane. But <laughs> you know, as someone who has like fondness for like DC's animated films that they made between like 2008's release of the death of superman and then up until flashpoint paradox which i want to say was 2014 where they had like a good solid like while marvel was really hitting it out of the park with like theatrical live action feature films dc was putting out like animated adaptations of some of their more famous comics most of them were pretty good uh new frontier and uh, crisis on two earths and under the Red Hood, especially, which I nominated for a movie of the month some time back. Those are all great movies. And this was not as good as those, but it has the same sort of cartoonish indulgence as the worst of those. So I can't hate it for what it is, but I certainly hate it for what it represents, if that makes any sense. <laughs> I also finished out because like I was talking about before, once I get like just within like viewing distance of anything Thomas Harris related, I immediately get stuck in a Hannibal black hole. So we talked about me watching silence of the lambs and my rewatch of Manhunter. I also watched Hannibal from, uh, I want to say 2001 with Julianne Moore as Clarice. It was bad. But there were parts of it that were good. I really enjoyed everything that was happening in Italy. I really expected the worst thing about it to be uh, the replacement of Clarice. Not that Julianne Moore is a bad actress. She's great. But just I thought that I would be more put off by that than I was. But really, 
the best thing about Hannibal is all the stuff that happens apart and separate from Clarice, where Hannibal Lecter himself is playing a new cat and mouse game with uh, the Italian detective who is sort of unwilling to capture him legally because instead he wants to turn him over not to the authorities but to Mason Berger as played by Gary Oldman who is a man that was disfigured and and has a grudge against Hannibal so that he can uh, get part of Mason's fortune. So all of that is so much more interesting than the film's really half-assed, ham-fisted FBI sexism narrative that like Clarice is dealing with. Even though I will say if you have to, if you're going to hire someone to be a sleazy uh, justice department employee who is a misogynist and a sexist, Ray Liotta should always be at the top of that list. He does well with it, with just making your skin crawl. I also watched red dragon and it is fine. Uh, I think it's passable. I don't think it's as good as Hannibal uh, in the sense that there are parts of Hannibal that are great. By which I mean, of course, Hannibal the movie. Uh, Red Dragon has parts of... uh, No part of it is truly great in the way that parts of Hannibal are. It's a much more even movie with no peaks, no valleys, just kind of the same all the way through. And it's uh, sort of baseline is not great although i will say that uh ray fines is the best version of francis dollarhide and i also think that this has the best version of will graham's wife molly and i was surprised by how good harvey keitel was in it like how much i liked him as jack crawford because he usually does not play reasonable authority figures well you know it's mostly like bad lieutenant is what you think of you know reservoir dogs where he's like violent and cruel and wicked but he actually does manage to play sort of paternal in this one in a way that i was surprised by so kudos to harvey keitel not that he needs it from me and i also finally watched hannibal rising which was very difficult to find both hannibal and red dragon are on netflix in japan hannibal rising appears to only be on netflix in germany It is really bad. It stars, I think his name is Gaspard Uliel, or Gaspard Uliel. My French pronunciation is terrible. uh, Who is a French actor who plays Hannibal as a teenager. And it's the origin story of Hannibal Lecter. I won't go into details. You can read my review if you kind of want a summary of it. But basically, I'm not a fan of any time that we get like an over explanation of where a monster or a villain came from. I find that kind of tiring and also it, it makes it less interesting, but I talked more about that in my review as well. That's also some real Snyder cut shit. Just adding in extra information about how we got to this place. (laughs) Yeah. Fair. And then finally I saw two movies that are basically big budget like lifetime style narratives. Uh, the first was <laughs> the Jennifer Lopez vehicle, the boy next door, which camp classic. Yeah. I guess James wrote about it years ago. It's one of the few that he did. It's interesting. in as far as it is a film that you rarely see 
in any film. I was going to say Western film, but any film really. Anything that takes such delight in the beauty of the male form, like even when you have like oftentimes a director who is a woman, she's not necessarily inverting what we call in theory the male gaze where, you know, uh, I don't think that there's anything sexy about any of the men in Catherine Bigelow's films, other than maybe Point Break, where that's part of the charm. But there are so many films that are just casually about, they so casually invoke the male gaze as far as like the presumption that the audience is straight, that they are white, that they are you know cisgender, and that they are male. And The Boy Next Door... And the other movie I want to talk about, both of them are very much about like, ooh boy, look at this sexy man, you know, check him out (laughs) before things really go south. So I would say The Boy Next Door is campy. I don't know that I would call it a camp classic personally. (laughs) Exaggerating a little. (laughs) It takes itself a little bit too seriously. I do love the moments that don't appear to be aware that they're campy. Uh, in particular, there's the scene where Jennifer Lopez's character, she's a teacher, and she shows up to go into her classroom, and she's tried to break it off with uh, Ryan Guzman's character, and he has, like, secretly filmed their night together, and has, like, printed, like, thousands of photographs and put them all over her classroom and she like locks her students out while she desperately tries to like get all of them gathered up and thrown away with this like ticking time clock and then the principal shows up i don't know i can't really recommend it but it is on tubi you know our our favorite streaming service Uh, the other film that i saw is called what lies below it stars mina savari Um, who is apparently of an age where she can play the mother of a teenage daughter who's the actual lead, which made me feel old and gross and tired. But she, the film is about a girl named Liberty, uh, played by Emma Horvath. She's supposed to be 16, but the actress right now is 27. And so she was either 25 or 26 when this film was made, and she looks it. Like, I'm going to be honest, she looks it. And so a lot of the things that you're supposed to feel because she's supposed to, you know, be a teenager don't really add up for me. But anyway, uh, Liberty has come home from, like, an archaeological summer camp. Uh, at which she was the oldest participant by like several years. It's mostly uh, like 10 year olds. And, you know, she's a teenager. She's coming back to this lake house that she, she actually inherited from her grandfather, her mother's father. And she and her mom have a real cute relationship. Seems real sweet. They get back to the house and it turns out that mom has a new boyfriend. His name is John and he's, you know, like the boy next door, it is shot to be like, Ooh, yeah, look at this man coming out of the lake. And like, you see it in Liberty's character's eyes as well, multiple times. But uh, of course he's too perfect. He's, he's like an aquatic geneticist who is checking out the lake as part of an ongoing project to sort of help prepare animals for a world 
aquatic animals in which the the world has an increasing salinity in its water where like the fresh water that's in lakes is sort of disappearing because of movements from climate change and various other problems uh, but actually it turns out he's some sort of spoilers um I guess skip ahead a minute or two, anybody who's listening who thinks they might see this movie. He's some kind of lamprey alien. (laughs) It's strange because this kind of movie, narratively, the things that it reminds me of are things like my stepmother is an alien or a step monster with Alan Thicke where the son, you know, he's trying to stop his dad from marrying this like secret monster woman. And this film is kind of like that in that you have this teenage protagonist who comes home. Her mom is totally smitten with her super fucking hot new boyfriend. And the boyfriend's kind of a creep. And he's like growing these lampreys in the basement. And then he's like, I'm going to marry your mom. But he's never overtly cruel to her or anything like that. He seems very kind and supportive. And then, of course, we in the audience see him kind of being a creep long before the character does in a way that makes it read not quite as well as the film thinks it does. And the scores for this film on the Internet are pretty low. Uh, It has a 64 on Rotten Tomatoes, which is, as always, a problematic metric um, with a 55 percent audience score. Its Google rating is 1.8 out of 5. And if you look at it, it's like the one-star distribution accounts for more than half of the ratings. And I don't think that it deserves that. I think that it's a much better movie than that. I think a three-star would probably be more accurate. And I will say that if you look at it and you look at the reviews that are actually writing a review and leaving their name with one-stars... Most of them, this is going to include some assumptions about gender, but most of them have male names and their avatars are photos of men. Ain't that always the way? Review bombs on IMDb and on Rotten Tomatoes in particular are just like Gen X chuds. (laughs) They're like on a different planet than everyone else uh, is currently living on. Yeah, there's an awful lot of just like any time that you have a movie like this, Regardless of quality, if it has any affection for or any eye on the beauty of the male form, it really makes them uncomfortable in a way that they're like, I have to get on Google and get this a one-star review right now. The other reviews, you know, they do mention something that we talk about a lot, which is that, quote, the ending doesn't make any sense, unquote. Although what we're really talking about is that it's a film with an unhappy, ambiguous ending in which, you know, our theoretically teenage hero does not come out on top we eventually i guess learn or realize that this whole town is full of hot identical men and they're all (laughs) seducing these milfs in order to create hybrid lamprey babies although we never really like see any of that there's some really good body horror going on with that that i think people aren't giving it enough credit for and People are like, oh, where did he come from? What is he? But at one point, she, for very contrived reasons, accidentally drives her mother's car into the lake. And when she turns on the high beams very briefly, you can see what's clearly some kind of like artificially created 
perfectly square, possibly metal structure under the lake. So it's clearly like, uh, you know, a ship crash or something. But people really want things to be spelled out for them like their children, like we were talking about with Zack Snyder's Justice League, the theme park ride. And so I think that's where <laughs> a lot of this negative sentiment is coming from. But on top of that, when it has like, ooh, yeah, look at this sexy man, that also makes a lot of people feel uncomfortable. A lot of straight white men who are overrepresented on the internet um, feel uncomfortable and feel the need to say negative things about the movie, even though I don't think it's actually that bad. I give it a recommendation, but you know, I wouldn't say drop everything that you're doing to go see it or go watch it, but it is currently on Netflix. It was just added. And yeah, that's what I've been watching. Brandon, what about you? I've been watching giant monster movies all week. (laughs) You say that so glumly. Uh, It's great. (laughs) I can't say that it's like uh, an adventurous, you know, academic exercise or anything like that. The Godzilla versus Kong movie came out and I wanted to see those two monsters fight. And, the movie was great because the monsters fought the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> I've kind of been a little bored by most of those MonsterVerse movies. Like, I didn't like Kong Skull Islands because the Vietnam War movie template it was kind of riffing on is just not my genre. And, you know, Godzilla King of the Monsters and Godzilla 2014, they were like, okay, but nothing special really to my eyes. This new movie... It has all of the boring, like, American add-on characters that are just sort of, like, orbiting around uh, the two kaiju characters as if they're just, like, little moons around, like, a planet. And you kind of just have to, like, roll your eyes at their presence. Especially in this one, um, Brian Tyree Henry plays a podcaster. So, like, a lot of the movie is about this, like, conspiracy podcast, which uh, is really funny. Like, after, like, the last Halloween uh, remake slash sequel, like... There's now two major blockbuster horror movies about podcasting, which is a disturbing trend. Uh, this is not that interesting of a hobby. <laughs> um, but, you know, besides all that, like, most of the main drive of the film is the monsters actually fighting with each other. And they tell the story through those clashes in, like, an almost, like, pro wrestling style. Like, you get enough drama and enough, like, narrative over the sequencing of that fight. And the emotions it builds, like when one character gets knocked down and like finds the strength to get back up and then smash the other one's face in. And I don't know. It's just so wonderfully realized. Like all of the actual fighting between Godzilla and Kong is inventive and surprising and feels tactile, even though they're both CG creatures. Like there's shots that look like um, almost like body mounted cameras. Like when Kong falls, like the camera falls with him. When, you know, Godzilla (laughs) smacks him in the face, like, there's, like, a thud to it that actually feels physical um, in a way that a lot of CG movies don't. And by the end, I was just a big, smiling, happy kid. (laughs) Just, like, uh, even now, thinking back to the things I liked about it, all I can recall is um, the actual fights, like, smashing action figures together. And uh, if that sounds fun to you, (laughs) I definitely recommend checking it out. But I did have kind of like a crisis when uh, I first went to go watch the movie. It's really hard for me to keep track of what movies are coming out when on what platforms, especially because I'm trying to see, you know, a lot of newer stuff as it comes out, just so we have movies to talk about on here. 
and I showed up a week early to watch Godzilla versus Kong on the HBO app. I was like at least four or five days too early. Oh no! And I was in a mood for a fight, and I didn't know what to do with myself. So my reasoning was, I'll just pick a monster in like the Godzilla universe that I enjoy, and I'll watch their versus Godzilla movie. Um, so I immediately went to Mothra, obviously, because Mothra rules. Yeah. And yeah. then I was faced with another crisis. There's two of those. There's Mothra versus Godzilla in 1964 and Godzilla versus Mothra in 1992. And I was like, okay, so what do I watch now? And the obvious answer was both. So I watched both of those films and they were both great. Mothra versus Godzilla 64, the uh, sort of original one, is from that early run of those movies. It's just like rubber monsters wrestling it out. You know, Mothra's got that string puppet thing where she just sort of flies in and she sprays her poison pollen on Godzilla and she has her squirmy um, pupae stage where she just like wreaks havoc on the city. Really fun movie. I kind of know her as like a character in other films. Like if there's like five monsters on the screen, Mothra is one of the ones that is included. I had never really seen one of the standalone Mothra movies before this. And I didn't realize that they had the trope of the foot tall women that accompany Mothra and speak on her behalf to the, to the oh, humans yeah. of the world. Yeah. Uh-huh. Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> it reminded me of going to see um, Bride of the Frankenstein for the first time on the big screen and not knowing that half the movie was going to be about miniature people that uh, some scientists was dicking around with in the lab for our delight. Um, <laughs> I was just really uh, surprised by that and had a lot of fun with it. Yeah, Mothra's fairies are my absolute favorite thing about any of those movies. Because I'm not a huge kaiju person. I like, you know, obviously the original Godzilla. I love Shin Godzilla. But I think that Mothra is the cutest. Um, and Mothra's little fairies are great. Mothra is so cute. I love Mothra. Well, have you seen Godzilla vs. Mothra in 1992 where she gets kind of a makeover? It's so good. <laughs> no. Oh my gosh. The 64 one, the one I was just talking about, is great, like, classic Godzilla movie. The 92, like, revamp is kind of this, like, post-Jurassic Park version of that. Like, it, it's definitely like a 90s action film. The story is, like, not great. It starts off with this, like, Indiana <laughs> Jones, like, kind of spelunking and um, just, like, really useless buildup. But once the Mothra and Godzilla fights start, it is such a gorgeous film. Like the color palette of it is like a teen girl's bedroom, like lots of like pastels and eventually like neon lights because Mothra has a goth frenemy called Batra. (laughs) It's like this like goth version of Mothra uh, that breathes like neon laser fire and has like Guy Fieri flames on her wings and uh, the two of them like battle each other for a bit and then team up to like throw the whole man away. They like pick up Godzilla and toss him in the ocean. And it, it's just really gorgeous and just fun to see like those Spielberg era, like action blockbuster aesthetics applied to the rubber monster suit kind of fights. It's not CG yet. Give or take a CG comet crashing into the planet in the film. And uh, they also kept the uh, foot tall women advocates for Mothra in the film. They're called the Cosmos in this one instead of the Peanuts, but uh, they're they're wonderful in this as well. Both movies are great. 
The advocates for uh, Mothra sounds like a political party I would join. In the original, one of the evil corporate assholes jokes like, oh, so Mothra gave you power of attorney? And that's kind of how I thought of them for the rest of the movies. Like, they're um, <laughs> they're little lawyers <laughs> who are, like, you know, just negotiating her terms. Love it. Baron, he has this wonderful demeanor about him. He's a cat who wears a top hat and has a cane. He's just a very dapper cat. I thought of combining the voices of David Niven and Alec Guinness in there. Give him some real dignity and poise. Cat poise. (laughs) This week, I had all my friends here watch The Cat Returns, which is technically a spinoff of another Studio Ghibli movie that... I haven't watched, but have read the synopsis of, and it doesn't nearly hold my interest, like, being kidnapped and taken to the land of the cats, because that's that's who I am as a person. So yeah, it's about Haru, this girl who saves a cat, and she's just going through a hard time already in sort of, you know, anime protagonist fashion of always being late for school, not being very good at school generally, having a crush on a boy, being really embarrassed, you know, preteen stuff. <laughs> One of those, it would be nice to have those be my only problem sort of problems. She rescues this cat who then turns out to be the prince of the land of cats and suddenly the king of cats voiced by Tim Curry in the English dub, which is amazing, declares her betrothed to his son. There's a lot to love about this movie. It's delightful, it's fun, it's light, but I also just really like that usually movies with the message believe in yourself is more like for very, very small children. And it's not something you stop needing once you're like not a child. It's not something you... You stop needing once you're grown. You know, this movie very much has that that heart to it. And it's not that believing in yourself takes care of all of her problems. But, you know, just a movie that is so, like, concerned with your stereotypical, like, teen girly matters for self-confidence to be the goal is really nice. Yeah, it's almost not believe in yourself. It's, like, assert yourself. Yeah. Like, don't let other people tell you who you are or what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Because if you let them get carried away, then all of a sudden you're in a different realm and you turn into a different species and forget who you are. So it's not just believe in yourself, right? Like that, that is like a pretty typical message, but uh, it's a little, a little twist on that. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely people will get carried away if you just go along with whatever. What did y'all think? I thought it was very cute. I don't know if everybody else watched it dubbed or subbed. I watched the American dub, yeah. Yeah. With Studio Ghibli films, I generally toss a coin. Some of them, I think, have really great dubs. Like, I think Nausicaa really benefits from the dub in a way that some of the others don't necessarily. Princess Mononoke has such a great voice cast in the American dub. 
This one I watched dubbed mostly because I was thinking about Princess Mononoke and I was like, oh, this has people that I like in it, including I was really pleased to see uh, Christine Sutherland, who uh, in the English dub voices um, her uh, mother. And of course, Christine Sutherland, best known as Buffy's mom. So I was like, oh, yeah, of course. Of course she sounds like the perfect mom to me. That's why. It's because it's Christine <laughs> Sutherland. Yeah, you've got Judy Greer in this one. You've got Peter Boyle. You've got Carrie Alves. You've got Deep Space Nine's own Renee Albergenois. I wasn't going to bring up uh, Renee Albergenois because we were always threatening to, to go on the Star Trek. I need to buy a bell to ring. Yeah. <laughs> Just to, like, note the occasion every time. I think it's become one of our most charming running gags. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> if I may say so myself. So, Deep Space Nine's own Rebecca I think the worst was uh, before you joined us, Allie, there was a time that Brandon was telling us, telling me that he had watched Tank Girl. And I was like, oh, Voyager's own Lori Petty. She was in one episode. But. <laughs> <laughs> You know, There's that's immediately a lot of really where I memorable went. Memorable episodes of Voyager. Yeah, yeah, it's true. She's the. Do you remember the one? That, I'm sorry. No, never mind. I won't no, do that. No, we gotta um, stop. We gotta stop. <laughs> we gotta stop. I need a bell and a buzzer. <laughs> we need electric collars. I thought it was very cute. I was kind of surprised, in comparison to what I am accustomed to a Ghibli moving look like movie looking like. It looks a little cheaper. It's less ambitious visually. Yeah. The backgrounds are still painted, but the character designs seem a little more flash animation-esque. Like they're they're not as detailed. They don't allow for as much emoting. And I guess we spend so much time in the cat kingdom that it you know you also want your human characters to sort of be easy to draw i guess but i was shocked by how for a studio ghibli film how inexpensive it looked in comparison to what i was used to but i also still thought it was adorable and it did fill my heart with warmth i was warm inside watching this film i also think it's cute i've seen this twice now and i have to admit both times i saw it i was like a little bored even though it is short mm. But it's not like an unpleasant boredom. It's like a uh, unchallenging kind of movie in some ways. Like you kind of just go along for the ride and it's cute. And you're like, oh, she's with the cats now. I wonder how she's going to get out of this pickle. And then it all resolves itself pretty easily after a little bit of swashbuckling. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, having to watch it for the podcast the second time, you know, I actually have to think about the story that they're telling. So I kind of went from like, pleasantly amused and maybe a little like you know i could be folding my laundry and watching this and not really lose anything <laughs> it's kind of like the headspace i was in it's like a good like mm -hmm. afternoon movie but you know thinking about like the story it's telling this time i was just like really concerned about how insistent these like adult cats were that this teenage girl marry one of them <laughs> for some reason that was like bothering me the more i had to think about the like narrative it was it was putting across i was like it was kind of horrifying. Like, yeah. You're like changing her species and like forcing her into marriage. Uh, and it's kind of a funny story to tell in a movie so consciously adorable. And I, I think there is a little bit of a fantasy built in, like like a safe romance, like, oh, I, I want to marry my cat. Like that's kind of like <laughs> a, uh, <laughs> a romantic whimsy that like 
e-girls would have that this movie's kind of playing directly into but it also is like pretty sinister the, the more you think about its implications yeah like it feels you know as far as like your comment about it being boring in you know the nicest way to me you know part of that is you do buy into the fantasy but the stakes don't feel that high until you stop and you're like wait a second they want to <laughs> marry her off to a cat a cat <laughs> they're turning this girl to a cat so it is it is an interesting sort of horror in that regard while also being so carefree and i do want to say like baseline like what would be like relatively mediocre anime is still on a much higher level than most children's media. <laughs> like, yeah, I can look at this 2d like hand-drawn animation style and be like in wonder of it, especially when it's relative to like the sort of standard CG animation that is in most like American animated films or even like Ghibli's most recent film that, aired on HBO Max this year, Earwig and the Witch. Like, the screen grabs from that were, like, horrifically grotesque to my eyes. Uh, This movie, you know, I I don't think it's, like, the height of their accomplishments or anything, but it is, like, still beautiful and still wonderful to watch. I'm just not shocked to learn it was originally supposed to be 45 minutes and they kind of stretched it out to to feature uh, in development. One of the things that I noticed that I wanted to highlight was... Whenever I was a kid, we had a VHS tape of a movie called, in English, The Wonderful World of Puss in Boots, which apparently was an early film produced by Toei. And Miyazaki was one of the animators on it. And there's a sequence at the end of Puss in Boots where this is the Puss in Boots story that I'm most familiar with. I must have watched this VHS tape when I was a child upwards of 50 times in which it's like a cat and it's the fairy tale where he wears boots and he pretends to be a man and he helps like a farm boy rescue a princess from in this version an ogre and at the end of it they are running up the side of you know these uh, spiral staircases that encircle a tower leading up into the sky so that an amulet can be struck by the dawning sun and while i was watching this i was like god there are parts of this that really look like puss in boots the one that i grew up with and apparently that's intentional Uh, Looking at the Wikipedia page, they say most famous of the sequences is a chase across castle parapets animated in alternating cuts by Miyazaki and uh, Yasuo Otsuka, who is another Japanese animator who is part of or was part of the um, Ghibli studio system. The last thing that he worked on was like a Lupin movie, but apparently he was also heavily involved with that uh, late 80s little nemo uh animated film that was hard to find in america for so long that movie i did grow up with yeah i did as well i was thinking about that a lot during this film like that movie does bore other people when i show it to them because i have a dvd <laughs> of it but it's like well if you had seen this when you were my age you'd be like enraptured yeah and, like, exactly terrified <laughs> And I think the other thing about the the Little Nemo movie is, as kids, we always watched it super late at night. And so it it did take on this sort of magical thing. And I think for a lot of 
animated movies, you do have to catch them at that point in time. And usually that's part of like Ghibli's charm is that you can enjoy them whether or not you've grown up with them. But I can't say I've seen the the Puss in Boots version. My memories of it are so primal and foundational. The movie is sort of inspiration for imaginary play for me as a child where it was like running up like things at the park like the amulet the amulet like that was you know that's still one of those things that my parents joke about you know like on into adulthood where they'll like bring up some like thing that you said as a child like what happens in this movie where uh Buffy's mom is like oh you know you told me when you were a child that you could talk to cats and a cat told you that life is hard I was like oh this is adorable (laughs) Would you say the Baron is kind of a Puss in Boots archetype? He certainly has sort of the same dashing, debonair, sartorial sense. Like he dresses like Puss in Boots in that movie. But I think that he's much more... The Puss in Boots, as I recall in the movie from my childhood, was much more like uh, animated in the sense that he was... There's the scene where he defeats the king on that parapet and then he like picks up his cane and like kind of, you know, very tenderly like folds his jacket over his arm before he resumes running to the top of the tower. And I think that the Puss in Boots of my childhood is much more like a child, not not actually a child, but more animated, more excitable Whereas Baron is very calm and cool and collected at all times. One of the other things that I kind of wanted to talk about, and it's interesting, I'm always curious about things that is just like, wow, that's just extremely, extremely Japanese. And you see it here with, there's like the Shinto sort of influence in this. You know, Baron is a figurine that comes to life out of belief, which is just incredibly Shinto and of course you see that across so many different boards as far as anime and all of that goes so it's really interesting to me as a person who like frankly I don't like movies where inanimate stuff comes to life but I'm fine with this (laughs) it's like Toy Story is pushing it for me actually uh but I'm fine with this what is Shinto it's um this like Japanese religious spiritual belief. There's a lot of the spiritual power of objects and places. And so And it's like after an object has existed for like a long time, then it has its own spirit. Is yeah, that right? yeah. I watched this movie once called uh, Yokai Monsters uh Spook Warfare, where uh it's like this kind of collection of different sort of Japanese like myths. That kind of uh, descend upon this house. And, you know, one of them's like a kappa, and the other one's this, like, kind of standard ghost woman. Uh, and one of them is this, like, sentient umbrella that is, like, a, uh, I think it's a representation of that exact concept. That's the last time I had heard of it uh, between then and now. Yeah. I like it in this movie, though, because it's kind of like just the art of creation is what gives something life. It's not that he's this, like, antique object, it's that because someone thought of him that created him. Which I think I think is something that always works for me. Like I love that kind of like art coming alive concept in media. I was sort of confused by his coming to life, where he's like, "I'm alive because someone believes in me," but I was willing to just 
take the movie at its word and be like, yeah, sure. And just go along with it. You know, I think that is one of the goofier details. And it's because this movie is a spinoff of a film where that is either the main draw. I've never seen whisper of the heart either, even though I've seen this twice, but I think whisper of the heart, that is like a, it's like a theme. And in this one, they use that as an, uh, a reason to pull in these outside characters from outside the cat kingdom. Uh, what's really goofy about that is the statuette that comes to life. Like the Baron is also a cat. It's like, yeah. uh, <laughs> he's just like not from the magical cat kingdom. He's a statuette that was turned into a real cat. Can you even trust like a real cat to have to save you from the cat kingdom though? <laughs> no, I couldn't trust my cat to save me from anything. So I think that, you know, it wouldn't be realistic to have an actual cat try to save her, Brandon. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. So would Tim Curry's like evil king character be the most realistic cat in this film? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, there's something about his delivery of babe. 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 <laughs> babe. Multiple times throughout this film that I was like, oh, God, it makes my skin crawl. But yeah, I believe it. There's a great... um behind the scenes feature at you can watch on YouTube of all the American actors uh, reading their cast lines. And he was really into saying babe as many different inflections as he could. Oh my God. <laughs> Reminded me of that great clip of him singing toxic love in the recording booth for Fern Gully. He's just a wonderful person to see that voice come out of his body. It's funny. You know, I have seen this before, obviously before recommending it, but I totally forgot how stacked the voice cast is just so many great voices in it like you said despite looking cheaper than a lot of other ghibli films so they had some sort of pool here i think peter boyle as a as a fat lazy cat is a great casting choice that was fitting i actually loved annie hathaway uh in the main role too she has my favorite line reading in the whole film before she gets abducted and her friend's like why are you so obsessed with that boy she goes, I just think he's so darn cool. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It seemed like she was having fun with it. Um, and that behind the scenes thing, she also talks about how, you know, the same way that Tim Curry has to come up with a, a thousand different ways to say babe. She has to scream in terror in like a bunch of different ways. So they show her just in the recording booth, just yelling at the top of her lungs, like in every inflection she can think of to fit into the film. And uh, I, I appreciate the commitment and the enthusiasm from her at all times. She's always, like, very engaged with the material. Good casting. Yeah, it's great. And like I said, uh, I, I am calling this movie mediocre, but it's all relative. Like, the fact that this, I read this was, like, the highest grossing domestic film in Japan, whatever year that comes out. This is the level of, like, animation they get that makes great box office. We get shit like the Minions. So um, <laughs> this is, like, definitely a step above what our mediocre animation would be like. Yeah. yeah. Even bad anime is kind of good. It, it only looks uh, sort of cheap compared to, like, Spirited Away, which came out the year before. Exactly. You know, it's, it's still, you know, well animated in comparison to most of what we see. I do think this kind of movie though is perfect for young children. Kind of like little Nemo. I was thinking about that. Like how, when you rewatch those as an adult, they seem so short. I remember rewatching Beetlejuice a few years ago and it felt like I was just zooming through it. Like all these scenes that I kind of remember living in like the world of that moment for like forever. Um, we're just zooming by in this like 90 minute like parade. And I could see this movie feeling like a lot more luxuriant and like 
its own special little world, like the whole cat realm for like the right kid who's got like cat fever to be transported there. I could see this being like a wonderful experience and, and little Nemo filled that niche for me as a kid. So I, I, I understand the place it has. Yeah. I will say I love the land of cats. I love that the King was, was evil. I loved the cats who are like his bodyguards when he comes to the human realm that their fur is patterned to look like little <laughs> secret service suits. I think that that was super adorable. <laughs> it, was, it was just a cute movie. I don't really know what else to say. It's adorable. As long as you don't think too much about um, forced interspecies marriages, it's a very adorable film. We can all uh, agree with that. Oh, yeah. I think in a certain way, none of us actually think that she's going to be forced to marry a cat. So I think we, <laughs> we all think she's safe. I don't think there's any ever, like, thinking throughout the movie, like, oh, no, maybe this is actually going to happen. The moment it really clicked for me how creepy all of this was, was, like, you know, the the cat she's supposed to be marrying, this, like, Prince character, is, like, off screen, off on his own adventure, gathering gifts for his own beloved the whole movie. So, yeah, that's not real. That part doesn't feel like an actual threat. But when that plan falls apart and the king is like, well, I guess I'll just marry you myself. That's when I was like, God, this is fucked. (laughs) It's like old monarch is going to force this like teenage girl into a marriage. And I do think she has like kind of a crush on the Baron, too. Oh, Oh, yeah, yeah. clearly. She she says it. (laughs) She's like, oh, I'm blushing, but I think you're cool. I think you're so There's even like two ways to read the ending, too, where... She's no longer interested in her crush at school when she like reemerges as a human. And she's like, oh, that doesn't matter anymore. And it's like, well, does that ma- not matter because you found yourself and you're not really looking to like validate yourself in this other guy? Or is it because you're like, I'm going to marry the Baron one day. So none of this shit matters. Um, <laughs> which, uh, I don't know. I find that very funny. Like there is like kind of a romantic whimsy to like, I'm going to marry a cat, a very handsome cat. <laughs> But the practical, like, application of it is creepy the more I had to dwell on it, I think. Especially when Tim Curry put his uh, hat in the ring and wanted to get involved. I was like, oh, no. I will say, I think that uh, when we're talking about children's media, and this could just be, like, my like male privilege coming through that I think this way, but when... I think about fairy tales that like I consumed as a child marriage. There was, there was not a sexual component to that. There was no psychosexual component to that. It was just like, Oh no, this princess is going to be forced to marry this ogre marriage to him. Sounds bad. It's bad. Like there's not a, there's not the element of, Oh no, she'll be forced to do that. Right. When we're talking about children's media, but I don't know, maybe, maybe that's not the case. That's fair. This is a fairy tale, but it's not like tale of tales, like dark, grimy adaptation of like old time fairy tales. Like it, it, it is safe in a lot of ways. It's, she's she's clearly not opposed to the concept of marrying a cat because she's like, well, I could marry the Baron, <laughs> just not that cat. Just yeah. not that one. I guess I could. If I choose to marry, it could be to a cat, but it will be a cat of my choosing who doesn't call me babe. <laughs> It's interesting, um, it's hard for me to put myself back in, like, kid shoes and be like, oh, what was scary about marrying a bad guy? And I think it's just the fact that you have to be close to the the bad guy, (laughs) you know? 
it's not even right. it's almost like the bad guy's just like well i guess i'm gonna have to be your friend forever then it's not something you want proximity wise it's like equivalent to being held prisoner yeah exactly and i think for young women you know that's definitely a concern but i don't see it that way either it's Definitely a byproduct of me thinking about the movie too much. Yeah, yeah. I'll cop to that immediately. Because um, <laughs> that did not... It kind of whizzed by me the first time I watched it. It was like rewatching it for this episode where I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, that's creepy as hell. <laughs> wow, I guess we're uh, marrying cats now. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, next week on the show, we are going to do an investigative report. Brittany um, has been fascinated with this urban legend that Shirley Stoller from the honeymoon killers that actor that she is actually this b picture actor from the 50s that like re-emerged with a different name and there's just these like swirling early online rumors about that uh mystery uh which i think we will come to a very definitive conclusion in that episode but it's something she wanted to talk about on the show and i relish the opportunity to watch something shirley stoller has done besides the honeymoon killers because she's very much defined by that movie in my head but she has a bunch of other credits so I'm looking forward to diving into her a little deeper. And for our movie of the month in April, it was Boomer's pick this month. And we watched the unconventional musical London Road, which is about a series of real life serial killings of sex workers in Ipswich, England, and is adapted from exact transcripts of neighbors and witnesses of those crimes and just like the really fucked up common... Um, response among like regular people when sex workers are murdered uh, and it's a very chilling upsetting film everyone in it is horrible and the songs range from like really beautiful to like really cruel really insightful but all of them of course are just uh, transcriptions of real interviews with people it's a lack of artifice made artificial and I love that as an experiment in art yeah it's like a really weird clash of like form and subject to have uh this like real life harrowing crime spree interpreted through such an artificial medium it's a very interesting movie especially for something on its budget level it really goes for something and i really appreciated the conversation that came out of it yeah. so i'll post that in the show notes for this episode and I guess I will have to decide what we're watching next time. Might be something in this vein, or it might not, but we'll get back to you. Another Swamp Flicks mystery. <laughs> so we'll see y'all next week. Bye, everybody. Bye.